Now the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And my name is Greg Knapp. I'm in for Greg Corumbus. You can find out more about me and get a free gift, gregorybnapp.com. also have a new podcast out. That's right there at the website as well. Please give it a listen. And I'm joined by David French. He is a senior writer for National Review, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, and a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. His Twitter handle, at David A. French. This is the Three Martini Lunch. So let's start with a good martini. Trump wants to buy Greenland. Okay, David, is this for real? <laughs> I don't know, but there's something about it that makes that really part of me makes uh, really wants it to be for real. I mean, <laughs> it, it's if anything, it just like this news that Trump wanted to buy Greenland for just a few hours uh, online on Twitter. We were relieved from the never ending backbiting and sniping and mutual partisan hatred of the last, well, gosh, more than two plus years, so the last several years. And we were all united for a brief but glorious moment in, in thinking about imagining what an American Greenland would be like. Uh, so I, I kind of had three reasons why I liked the Greenland purchase idea. Uh, reason number one, which is really the only one you need, which is if you love America, that's just more America. Like you're making more America. So America. I, yeah, absolutely. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, I mean, if global warming just continues unabated, um, we Greenland would be one of the nicest places to live in the world. <laughs> and it's oh, the largest no. island in the world. So, hey, you know, we could be uh, sipping, uh, sipping martinis on a very mild uh, temperature beach. In Greenland, and and very looking back, maybe 40, 50 years from now, at the wisdom of Donald Trump at purchasing the the largest island in the world, where we could all flee from the unbearable heat of the rest of the uh, of the rest of the globe. So that's number two, and then number three, as we're all aware, in a just a, a gigantic affront uh, to national pride, that the uh, the Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship this year. So the NBA trophy is outside of the United States. Well, so since Toronto, the Raptors, their, their entire slogan is we the North. If we buy Greenland, we could easily have the NBA move the Raptors to Greenland so that we could have an American team and they could still maintain that Northern identity. So I, I don't know of a downside. I mean, let's just borrow a little bit more money from China. Just not not too much just a little bit more money from china and get ourselves uh greenland well i've got a number four uh okay the, the number four is if trump buys it i understand he's going to rename greenland red white and blueland and, <laughs> and that'll be awesome i mean come well, on. I, I think that uh uh one of the funniest tweets uh this this guy who blogs under the pseudonym ala pundit tweeted something like uh america will buy greenland and Soon, it will. Trump will put up the the world's greatest Viking themed casino and resort. Many people are saying <laughs> ah, that would be nice. Maybe get Dolly Parton to help with that. That could be. <laughs> then it would actually make money. And so, David, here's here's my thing about this. Beyond everything we just said, all kidding aside, why are all these leaks coming out from his own people about stuff like this? I mean, there there's people in there that obviously want to make him look bad. That's not good for president. 
Yeah, I think that what's happening is that uh, there's a consistent theme that you're seeing from within his administration. And, and part of that theme is that there are people who are leaking some, some of the internal deliberation, some of the, the worst aspects of the internal deliberation, I think in part to tell and to demonstrate the reporters sort of how they're keeping the president in check and sort of trying to show that, they, that there are responsible uh, adults in the White House and that they're the responsible adults. So I think they're, they're, if you talk to people around the administration, what you find is that there is a real um, frustration with a lot of people at Trump's, the way Trump conducts his business, the way he talks, the way he thinks, how erratic he is. And so a lot of these people can't or won't keep that to themselves. And so they will leak some of these things, sometimes in the hope that it brings Trump to heel. Sometimes I think maybe in a self-aggrandizing way to sort of show like, hey, look, here's what I'm stopping from happening. Um, but there's, there's just a lot of frustration from an awful lot of people who are around the administration that. Yeah. And, you know, and, I, I agree. I mean, I totally understand that. I get that. I think we've all worked somewhere where we haven't liked our boss or we think the things don't go well. But a responsible adult, in my eyes, doesn't leak the responsible adult says, Mr. President, I don't think this is right and I can't work here anymore. And then they go tell what's happening instead on of on the record. Yeah. Instead of yeah. undermining somebody anonymously. Yeah, that's 100 percent true. I've written this a couple of times that, look, if you really want to be honorable, <laughs> if you yeah. if you really if you really want to blow the whistle on what the White House is like, well, resign and and go on the record with an extensive interview where people can know who you are and judge and evaluate your credibility. Instead, we have these like the, you know, the anonymous op-ed at the New York Times. Right. And, and one of the things that all this anonymous leaking does is it gives people a reason not to believe it. Uh, it gives people a reason to dismiss it. And, you know, some of the anonymous leaks have not panned out. Some of them are legit. And so, the uh, it's so it's much more honorable. It's much more courageous. It's much better for the republic if you have serious problems with the boss to resign. Do what Mattis did. Mattis resigned, wrote a, a, in a letter of resignation stating his reasons. Yeah, and you know so that's honorable. That's what you do. But no, we we have this this culture of leaking and backbiting. And I guarantee you, once this administration is over, whether it's and, you know, he leaves office in January 2021 or January 2025. Just watch out for the memoirs. <laughs> they're yep. they're going to all come out. Will he really leave in 2025? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's come on, man. All right. That's uh, martini number one. Let's go on number martini number two. It's the bad martini. If you've been following what's going on with representatives Omar and Talib, they were going to go to Israel with a special group. Well. Uh, Netanyahu decided, no, we have a law here that if you're going to come as part of the BDS movement, boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel, we're, we have a law that says we don't have to let you in, and we're not going to let you in. Now, we'll talk about that in a second, whether that was the right decision. But as this is coming out, there's been some fisking going on on Twitter of the group that was going to lead Omar and Tlaib's true, uh, trip. And what they're finding out is this group has some pretty nefarious stuff in its background. Uh, we're supporting um, 
the mission of the destruction of the Jewish state, uh, promoting the blood libel against Jews on the Passover, uh, calling all of Israel Palestine. I mean, it doesn't look like the kind of group that American congressmen should be using as their tour guides. What do you say, Dave? Yeah, this this should be a bigger story. I'm writing about this today, but it's been completely swallowed up by the controversy over Prime Minister Netanyahu reversing course. Previously, he was going to let Omar, uh, Ilyan Omar and Rashida Tlaib into Israel in spite of Israel's anti-boycott law. I'm going to let them in. Trump tweeted that it would be weak to let them in. Netanyahu reversed course. I, right. Uh, just real quickly, I, I mean, I just think that's tactically a bad move. I don't, I don't care about it that much one way or the other, but to the extent it matters, it was tactically a bad move, in part because of this, because everyone's talking about mm-hmm. Israel blocking these two congresswomen, when one of the things that we should be talking about is what the heck are two congresswomen, American represented, elected representatives, doing? going on a trip sponsored by this group called MIFTA? And you said it. I mean, if you go through their website and you look at some of the records of the things that they've printed, it is astonishing. I mean, they honor terrorists. They celebrate terrorists, especially this yeah, one terrorist who was killed in 1978 in the midst of a terror attack in Israel where 13 children were killed, 13 Mm. children killed, and they consistently celebrate this person. They've even printed years ago neo-Nazi, neo-Nazi documents from uh, a a white nationalist group in the United States. Mm. They have uh, consistently celebrated Palestinian suicide bombers. They question whether there was, they've printed Articles questioning whether there were there was even a temple on the Temple Mount. I mean, this this is just raw anti-Semitism, just absolute raw anti-Semitism. And you know, uh, the media would not would be all over this if if Steve King was going. You know, if Steve King was sponsoring or was uh, going on a trip sponsored by some sort of white nationalist organization, sure. and rightly so, uh, and rightly so. And in this circumstance. The media should be asking Tlaib and Omar, okay, we've, we've talked about the Netanyahu-Trump controversy. That's entirely proper to talk about that. Now let's talk, Omar and Tlaib, about you partnering with people that have spread, the, spread blood libel. And oh, by the way, when they were called out on it a couple of years ago, their response was to attack the people who called them out. Right. To defend That's the article. The yeah. Oh, yeah, to defend the article by, by saying, well, you know, it didn't really – have very much blood libel in it. <laughs> <laughs> only partially pregnant, right? Uh, yeah, only only a little bit of the article had blood libel. I mean, it, it's just, but but this is this is you know part in in the way the Washington Post and others have described MIFTA. They have completely left out this context. Uh, so you know, look, let's let's not sugarcoat any part of this. And we have two congresswomen. They've joined the BDS movement. BDS is an anti-Semitic movement. It seeks the destruction of Israel. They then go to Israel, and while they're in Israel, and, and they're sponsoring, and their their design uh, was to do a trip co-sponsored by an anti-Semitic organization. They didn't even call on the itinerary a trip to Israel. They called it to Palestine. Right. Uh, I mean, this is these two individuals are are deeply enmeshed in global anti-Semitism, deeply enmeshed in global anti-Semitism. And, 
And that's got to be called out. And this is a story, too. That's no a doubt about it. Too. David, like, like you said, if if Steve King had done something similar, not only would Steve King be asked about it, every Republican in every interview would be asked about it. President Trump would be asked about it. There'd be opinion columns written about it. And yet, because it's the Democrats and because it has something to do with Israel, it's being ignored. I mean, Omar and Tlaib should be asked, but so should every Democrat. And it should be asked at the next debate. And it, well, like, I, yeah, are- I will tell you this. I'll tell you this. <laughs> There's an awful lot of Democrats right now who are actually regretting the way in which right after 2018, they celebrated Omar and Tlaib so mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. The, the Democrats and the media pushed them forward. You remember there was a Rolling Stone cover. Um, these people were put forward as the face of the new Democratic Party. Exactly. And there was not due diligence done. <laughs> there was, they did not do due diligence. And now the media it's it's the media is still failing to do due diligence. The media is still failing to expose exactly what's happening. And with Alexandria Ocasio, excuse me, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez being a part of the so-called squad, she should be asked about it too. Where does she stand on this? Oh yeah, if you're going to identify, you know, there's this group of four congresswomen. They call themselves squad, the squad. If you're part of the squad, the squad should be made to answer why half their members. We're partnering with a viciously anti-Semitic organization that celebrates suicide bombing and printed blood libel. So Absolutely. I think that's a pretty, I think that's a pretty basic requirement for U.S. Con- U.S. members of the United States Congress uh, to ask them not to partner with vicious anti-Semites when visiting Israel. And David, one last piece on this story. I saw today that. Israel, Netanyahu, they were working with Tlaib to say, we understand your grandma's here. We understand you want to come visit. Um, We'll let you visit as long as you promise not to promote BDS while you're here. And actually, Tlaib had written a letter to Israel saying, please let me come see my grandma, and I promise not to promote a boycott while I'm there. Well, once Israel said, okay, as long as you promise not to do that, she's now said, no, 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 I can't do that. that. That'll take a part of me away. What is going on? I mean, what's going on is grandstanding. Yeah. Uh, what, what's going on is anti-Semitism. What's going on is uh, media negligence and failing to report the full context. Uh, that's what's going on. And it's it's deeply disappointing to see. But uh, we're doing what we can to expose what's actually happening. I'm going to write about it today. Good. And uh, um, many other people are starting to wake up and realize the full context of this situation. Yeah, and I first saw that it uh, came across Twitchy.com uh, at four fifteen or so yesterday. I was I was guest hosting a syndicated radio show, and I talked about it on the show. And I said, I'm predicting this will not be in the Washington Post or the New York Times tomorrow. And it didn't take a rocket science to predict that. And unfortunately, <laughs> that's exactly what we've seen happen. All right, let's get to martini number three. It's the crazy one. And David, you wrote a piece on this in National Review. Five Democratic senators, they've written this letter about how the Supreme Court needs to be healed and they're doing this and that wrong. And we may, there's hints that they may have to expand the court, which is code for pack the court. Give us a little detail what's happening here. Yeah, what's happening is there's, there is a case that is about to be heard in the Supreme Court that where a New York uh, Rifle and Pistol Association is challenging the city of New York's rules regarding the the handling, the possession and handling of handguns. 
And New York City had this unbelievable rule that basically said, if you have, if you own a licensed handgun, once it's in your home, the only place you can transport it is to a, a, a city approved gun range in the city of New York. And it has to be transported in a locked container separate from its unloaded, separate from its ammunition. And there are only seven public ranges in the whole city of New York. So if you had a gun, and it was a gun you owned lawfully, the only time you could take it out of the home was to go to a one of seven gun ranges. Now, the Second Amendment infringement here is, is really obvious. I mean, it's, it's not just a right to keep arms, it's a right to bear arms. And, and so what this meant is, let's say you had a, a vacation home or a rental property outside of New York, uh, you couldn't take it, the, your own personal handgun, to your own home in another part of the state or another state to defend yourself. Uh, you couldn't take it from New York to another state where you are uh, maybe even licensed to carry, or there's no prohibition against you carrying to defend yourself. You just had to have this thing in your home. So it just completely eviscerated the right to bear arms section of the Second Amendment. And so what happened is New York, realizing it faced a sure loser at the Supreme Court, slightly modified its law to be a little bit less restrictive and is now trying to get the court to dismiss the case as moot. Mm. And so several Democratic senators, um, including Maisie Hirano, uh, Richard Blumenthal, Sheldon Whitehouse, filed an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, in which that was one of the most astonishing things I've ever read. It essentially insulted, it didn't essentially, it insulted the conservative justices um, didn't just imply that they were doing the, biz, the bidding of their uh, Republican and corporate masters, tried to make the, at that overt outright claim that they were doing the bidding of their corporate masters, and then ended the brief with a warning that unless essentially they did what these Democrat senators wanted them to do, there might be political consequences. And so including you know, to the structure of the court, and so this is sort of like nice little nine-man Supreme Court you have there. Um, it'd be a shame if anything happened to it. I mean, it, right. it, was, it was really a remarkable document. I have never in my career seen a brief written ostensibly by respected and respectable Americans make such a direct attack on the integrity of the, of the justices. And I don't think it'll go over well with the court. No, but once, once again, David, that's an, an, an unbelievable letter, like you said. The idea, the, the left and the liberals are always like, the Supreme Court's the last word. The Supreme Court's the last word when it helps them. <laughs> and yeah, there's supposed to be a balance of powers. So that's kind of weird on exactly, I think a lot of Americans struggle with that whole balance between the executive, the legislative and the judicial, because, OK, if they're co-equal, then how come the Supreme Court can say this no matter what? And some say, well, you know, it depends on the Constitution. But at least at least uh, most conservatives I know say, well, you know, we just want judges that are going to rule on the Constitution. And it looks like a lot on the left just want judges that are going to rule the way they want them to. Well, I, you know, one of the aspects of this brief uh, that was so ridiculous is, is they were talking about the number of times there was a 5-4 majority 
and they were faulting the five for voting in lockstep. <laughs> right. well, what, well, what about the four? The who four. Were voting in yeah. I mean, because sometimes it's the, the only one that ever swings. Well, not only, but most of the time, the swing vote on the Supreme Court is a conservative, not a liberal. Right. I mean, most of the time they're the ones that are willing to go, well, you know, I think they're right this time. Usually the liberals are in lockstep. Well, frequently that's the case. I mean, the reality is it's on certain hot button issues that the five four and they they looked at that five four alignment of, you know, 70 some odd cases. But they went back for many, many years to get that alignment. The reality is the court is far less predictable on a day to day basis than they made it out. You often see seven twos. You see a lot of nine O's, eight ones, right. six threes. It, you know, on some of the most hot button culture war issues, you see that five four. But as a general matter, I mean, even on some hot button recent cases like the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, that was seven two. That wasn't five four. That was seven mm -hmm. two. And so, you know, what you have time and time again is uh, see time and time again is the court's a lot more complicated than partisans like to make it out to be. And and I will tell you this. The liberal justices won't like that brief. No, um, if no, they will not like that brief, one of the interesting aspects of the Supreme Court is, by and large, the justices on left and right respect each other. They understand that they have different judicial philosophies, and they rule and evaluate cases in accord with those different judicial philosophies. But they do not believe that their colleagues are corrupt, and that's essentially what that brief argues: is that they are corrupt, and so. I don't think Ruth Bader Ginsburg will appreciate that. I mean, this is somebody who just recently said very kind things about Brett Kavanaugh. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was famously great friends with Antonin Scalia. I mean, right. a lot of these, these justices in many ways, I think America could actually take a lesson from them that they disagree vigorously in a professional capacity, but seem to, by and large, respect each other in a personal capacity. And it's it's actually kind of a model institution as far as how to disagree without hatred and bitterness and rancor. And and uh, instead, what what these Democratic senators did was try to introduce that bitterness and rancor. Great point. And, and once again, it does show, I believe, some bias in the media that this is not a bigger story. Because, as you mentioned, this is essentially trying to intimidate the Supreme Court. And if Republicans did that because they didn't like the rulings and they read a letter like this, I think the coverage would be a little different, don't you? Oh, if, if Ted Cruz wrote yeah. an amicus brief oh. that explicitly threatened the liberal justices on the court oh, man. and accused them of corruption, this would be front page New York Times. Yep. Yep. There you go. All right. Well, that's the three martini lunch. You can find out more about me at Gregory B. Knapp. You can find out more about David French at National Review and also follow him at Twitter at David A. French. Thanks for being with us and hope you have some great martinis this weekend.